And just like that, Hidden Nation, welcome right back into the studio. You got Josh Carey here, the Hidden Entrepreneur. So good to see you, to be seen, to show up. You know the deal. Does it help anybody to show up less than you know darn well you are capable of doing? We know the answer. It's no, right? It doesn't do anybody any good. And you know my story. Part of this nonsense was I spent the better of four decades showing up playing small because I stuck to the belief that I am not capable. So what did I do? Because I was so desperate to be liked to be included, to be seen, that I would go out and want to prove everybody right. Think about this ironic madness. I was under the belief that everybody thought so little of me that I wanted to prove them right. So I showed up playing so little and therefore they were right. But you know the deal, Hidden Nation, that's all in the past. We are here today to be seen, to show up as you know you're capable of. Listen, today's guest is extraordinary. Uh, I just got done consuming the audio version of the book. It's called Homeless to Hopkins. Imagine this, Dr. Christopher Smith is joining us, a radiologist at Johns Hopkins, uh, now in private practice, but we're going to hear all about when somebody says they're homeless, as he does in the title of his book, Homeless to Hopkins, there are so many variations and definitions of what impression that word can give. You think you know the impression here, you are in for a ride. First of all, doctor, thank you for joining the program. Thank you, Josh. Thank you for having me. So I, I, I said in no uncertain terms, I absolutely um, appreciate your story. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing that not only is the book doing extraordinary well, available on Amazon, Hidden Nation, and on Audible, if that's your thing, happens to be my thing, go download it and read it today. Uh, part of the story, though... Um, when you hear homeless, it's not just like, yeah, when I was a senior in high school, I was homeless. Prior to being homeless, doctor, you were, you put things into perspective for us. How would you like to frame this conversation? So most of my life growing up, we lived in poverty and lived in conditions that weren't our norm, are not normal living conditions. Um, we lived for months without electricity or basic utilities, heat bath water over a fireplace, cook food over a fireplace for months at a time, and be evicted many, many, many times. So many times I can't even count them, at least probably two dozen times by the time I was 16. Mm. Um, that's a short synopsis. Yeah, that, that that's that's right. And now to to put the the happy ending into perspective, you're a radiologist. What's so incredible is you lived a life that really nobody should live, nobody should be exposed to. But this is by no means a sob story, right? Correct. Yes, I didn't write it as a sob story or just say, "Look at me." I wrote it actually to inspire others to try to overcome their own challenges and difficulties in their lives. At what point in your life did you realize, you know, I'm, I'm probably at a point where I could share this with somebody where it can make a difference? Probably about 10 years ago, 10 years ago. So my wife came up to me and we were talking, I was struggling a little bit, you know, kind of the past baggage, baggage of the past kind of weighing me down. And, 
I had to work through that. So I obviously went to therapy for a while to kind of work through it. And then writing my book also was very therapeutic. My wife suggested it because of Vic, she uh, read Viktor Frankl's book. And she, she kind of read how Viktor Frankl kind of found a pain, a purpose to the pain of his past by sharing with others, help them overcome. And so she came up with that idea and shared that with me, that maybe if I shared the pain of my past, it would help others and have a purpose for my the pain that I went through. Now, the pain of your past, um, I, I it, it really, listening to it read, and I'm sure reading it, it reads like a movie. Certainly, this has to get some Hollywood attention. I, I would hope so someday, you know, someday, somebody, Hollywood make, you know, make a movie out of it, so... It it really does. And again, Hidden Nation, this isn't a sob story, but let's just paint some of the pictures here. Um, Chris, you grew up with with two parents who, I mean, like like many of us, they were physically present, but they were by no means emotionally present. They all had their own issues that they're working through. You were one of eight siblings, yeah? One of 11, actually. One, one of 11. 11. Yes. Wow. Huge so family. many... Yeah, so many details, and you were right in the middle. I love how you how you made reference that being uh, sort of in the middle of that eleven sibling family that y- you felt you felt sort of safe there, right? Because the peripherals were getting all the attention. Yeah, exactly. I just kind of was left to myself most of the time. So, and and you said that your family um, had 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 next to no money. Um, electric was shut off. The phone was shut off. You moved a dozen times in in half as many years, living in hotels. You had to live in literally in um, a carport, freezing cold. In cars, freezing cold. What was fascinating was that that part of the story. I think your senior year of high school, uh, you were all living in this tiny hotel because eventually you just couldn't find the means to go into another small house anymore. There was just no more options. So you all shacked up in a tiny hotel and your sister brought in some cats that you were allergic to. And your only option was to do what? To go sleep in the car. The car was my bedroom. That was my, my bedroom for months in Utah. So I grew up in Utah and Utah gets very cold in the winter, like you said. So I would sleep there during the winter and Sometimes I'd wake up, my hair would actually be frozen, either to the door or just frozen. Back when I had hair, you know, more hair anyway. (laughs) And you had to work, uh, whether they were legal or not, you were doing what you had to. You started earning a living at nine years old? Yes, correct. Yeah, my first job was when I was nine years old. I uh, picked fruit for a farmer in an orchard and kind of did that for the summer, did time. And basically gave the money to my parents when we earned money. So. And then um, you you have a whole history painted of your the way your mother was and the way your father was. What I found so intriguing, like you, right? Your environment didn't limit you to what you've accomplished and still have yet to accomplish, I'm imagining. But there was something intriguing I learned about your father. You said... And, and he struggled, right, to make ends meet, to find employment, to find a job. But you said he was brilliant, he was intelligent, he was smart. So what was missing from that equation? He was very intelligent, but he was kind of the dreamer type. He didn't have a lot of the um, put the pedal to the metal type, you know, work, meaning like the work ethic of just going and grinding out a job day in, day out, day in, day out. He had this idea of creating some fabulous invention, kind of like Elon Musk, you know, change the world, you know, and 
it didn't work out for him. So he kept trying to do all these little odd jobs and he never really said, uh, never stayed in like one job for any period of time. He just had this idea he was going to become some famous millionaire by some invention. And he, he never did obviously. So um, he was kind of chasing, I like it to, uh, kind of chasing his, his uh, phantom kind of chasing the phantasm, you know, the fat, the phantom that he never caught in his life. Yeah, we all have our own version of the life we've lived. Uh, many can relate to to dark, depressing. But again, it just seems like that so many were stacked. So it's extraordinary to see how you've shifted. What I know that there's a lot to this, but what was that moment where you almost saw that your out of the past instead of living in the present of that? So a couple of instances. When I was 12, I was actually very, uh, very depressed, sad. I almost took my own life. I put a loaded shotgun in my mouth and almost took my own life. And at that point, I realized there was no shortcut in life that so you just have to go through life. Whether the life is easy or difficult, you still have to go through it. There is no shortcut. And then when I, um, after I graduated high school, my father was arrested. My mother was admitted to a mental health facility because she almost took her own life. And at 17, I was left on my own. I only had maybe like 20 bucks to my name, a pair of shirt, pair of pants, and that was it. So then next, uh, the next year I stayed in college. I lived with my sister and I worked, I stayed with her and went to college and worked full time. By then that year, I lost my scholarship. This is the point of the story. I lost my scholarship and I didn't know what to do. So I basically did some self-medication for a, few, a little while. And I woke up one morning after we had like a, a, you know, a big party and I realized that was not how I wanted to live my life. I wanted to have more than that in my life. I didn't want to end up in some drunken hole, some, you know, place, dark place and never get out of there. And so I chose to actually start looking outward rather than inward. And I went and um, served a religious mission down in Southern California and with the Latino population down in the gang areas. And with that, we, um, it changed my perspective because they were so kind and loving. The Latino population was so awesome. They would give anything they had to you. And at that point, I realized that I didn't need to be a victim. I could be empowered and find joy and happiness regardless of my situation because they were that way. You know, they lived in very difficult circumstances, but they were so kind and positive. And I realized that's the way I wanted to live my life. And so then after that, that's what changed my perception 180 degrees. Like your father, you were extremely smart and uh, academic and excelling in, in high school. There was one teacher, Miss Thompson. Yeah. Was she, she was, what, what, was she sort of the most pivotal in that? She era? was. Yeah, exactly. As far as my educators, see, for me, teachers are heroes. I think teachers are amazing. They do so much good work. So, Mrs. Thompson, for me, I was in 11th grade. I decided to stop turning in my schoolwork. I decided I was done with school. Was done because with of your mom, though, right? Because yeah, exactly. she, yeah. Tell me about she was, that. She was always on my case. I could never do anything good enough. I got a ninety-five. It'd be like, why did you miss five? You know, I could never. I had straight A's that entire time, but it was never good enough because it wasn't perfect. But nobody's ever perfect, and I did very, very well. But it still was never ever good enough. And so at that point, I decided I was going to stop doing schoolwork. I was just done. You know, typical teenager, you know, kind of teenage angst, you know, I'm dumb, you know, attitude, whatever. So Mrs. Thompson realized that I was in her AP history class and she realized that she called me to stay after school one day and she had that English, old English teacher vibe, you know, with the still rim glasses, the no nonsense look, the teachers, you can like, you know, piercing your soul with their eyes, you know, that kind of look. And um, 
So she pulled me over and said, hey, Chris, what's going on? So typical teenager, I made some excuse. I didn't get it or whatever. And she just looked at me over her glass and said, Chris, you are so full of it. You are one of the most brilliant kids in this class. And the person you'll disappoint is you someday if you don't do your, if you don't do your schoolwork like you can. And she woke me up to the reality of what I was doing and what I needed to do to change. And her expectation that she had for me changed because I realized she cared and it was important that I do well and she expected me to. I had that expectation. And after that, I didn't really struggle in school after that. I put, you know, I put my nose to the grindstone after that. You are a certainly a decorated radiologist right now. You were at Johns Hopkins, thus the name of the book, but now you've since gone into private practice. Is there anything to say about that external personal achievement assisting with the history of emotion that you've gone through? Um, being at Hopkins? Yeah, Hopkins is a Or fat, that kind of, yeah. Yeah, that elevation. So when I played at Hopkins, I had less than 1% chance of getting in there. Literally less than 1% chance. There were 800 plus applicants for six spots in my specialty. And so literally the odds were way against me. And the fact that I got in, obviously, I think there were some, Dr. Siegelman, who was the man who interviewed me, he was the program director, amazing man, fabulous guy. Anyway, he saw something in me and he accepted me. And the amazing thing is when I went there, I was so much different than everybody else in my class because they all went to Ivy League schools and things like that. And I was married at this point. And, you know, my undergrad is nothing stellar, you know, my schools, you know, and just I was very much different. But I fit in very, very well because what I was going to say is people at Hopkins are amazing because it's just kind of it's like a very much a work. It's not there's not a lot of like. Um, kind of royalty like in medicine you know it's people that have achieved it they've worked hard they get there there's nothing given to them at that place like Hopkins it's like you have to show up and do the work even to get into a place like that and getting into a place like that was amazing because then it allowed me to kind of network with those people and see those high achievers you know just be in that group of people that are always just high achievers trying to do the best and save the world the best they can and it was an amazing place to be. And if you ever had any medical condition, I'd recommend Hopkins for anything. You know, they'll, they'll figure out some way. They'll do their best to figure out the way they can do it. And you were in your 20s when this happened. Yeah. So I was 27, I think, when I started Hopkins. When you applied and you knew 800 to 1, practically, right? 800 to yeah. 6, what was going on? Did you think, oh, there's no way? Or did you think like, ah, oh, I, I, I might be like, what were you thinking? Oh, I thought there was no way. I thought there was no way. And you know, there's no way a snowball chance and you know, where chance that I'd ever get there, you know, because I just applied for a dream shot, you know, my moon shot. I just tried for, you know, you know, figured, Hey, I applied at, you know, places like that. And some more middle tier programs and lower tier. I figured I may, at the very worst, I'd end up a lower tier program. Hopkins was just like a moonshot shoot for the stars. And, I figured I didn't actually think I would actually get in there. Honestly, I was being realistic, but I did. So, and Tina was by your side at this point. She was, yes. So, what was uh, what was the celebration like? What was that moment like when you're like, "I'm in"? It's kind of funny. I'd never had a lobster before, so we actually went to Red Lobster and had lobster. I had lobster for the first time ever, and. Um, and I think I had a steak. I think it was one of the first times I ever had a steak too. I never had a steak like growing up at all. So steak and lobster, I think is how we celebrated it. So 
is the word for me validation comes to mind was is that certainly one of the words that absolutely yeah validation is perfect because i realized at that point that i could actually do some great things i had it in me power in me to do these you know to achieve things you know the validation that i was somebody that you know the a value that i'd worked hard all these years and you know kind of that was the validation of those efforts Right, because growing up from birth through your, you know, 17, 18 plus, the book reads like one thing after another, after another. And again, we can all say, yeah, me too. I've had that too, but I've, I've read yours and you're here to tell the story. So it, it, it just seems like that at some point there was like, okay, you're validated. But all those years from teens and prior, I know you you said that you were going through times where you're like, okay, uh, I understand that life is to get through. Were you believing that, that you know what, this life in your teens and in that age, were you believing that life could actually work out in your favor? I hoped for it. I didn't necessarily believe it, but I hoped for it. I used to read stories in the library about people that overcame these incredible odds and, and and had successful lives. And those people inspired me. So I wanted to try to be like them. All right, Chris, what does it take? What does it take to overcome? Where do you begin? What's the secret sauce? What worked for you? What do we do? I think first thing you have to do is believe. You have to hope for something. You have to hope for whatever dream it is. You have to start with hope. And then you have to work really, really hard to get there. Work very hard. Always be the hardest working person in the room. Never take for granted. And any job you work at, work as that as if that job is your job for the rest of your life. For example, when I was a dishwasher, I wanted to be the best dishwasher that I could be, you know, and I worked as if that were going to be my job. Because then you succeed in each little job and every day it's a choice to do that success, to put it in every single day. And then the big thing is when you fail and things don't work out, you keep trying. You don't quit. That's probably one of the biggest things. It's a choice. I love the word. I use it all the time. Tell me more about choice. It's a choice. Every single day of our lives, we choose a variety. We make a variety of choices. And we can choose whether or not we wallow in our self area, our pity, or we can choose to do something different. We can't choose the circumstances we're given, but we can make choices that change those circumstances. And yeah, and as you said, um, adopting a stoic philosophy, practically when you were 12, right? Um, I've in my uh, adult life have adopted that philosophy. Tell me about that. Yeah, so it's very important that life's going to be hard. The thing to understand is life is hard for everybody. It's different, different levels of difficulty, but it's hard for everybody. It's nothing personal. And that's just life. And if you don't, you just have to keep working through it. When things get hard, you don't quit. You just keep moving. I like to think of buffalo and bison in a Yellowstone. When it, when the storms come, they don't walk away from it. They actually walk into the storm. Buffalo do because they find out that's just their behavior. And we should be the same way. When the storm comes, we don't run away. We go into the storm and keep going. And that's the way to get through it, right? As exactly. You said. Exactly. It's the only way to get through it because otherwise the storm will push you wherever and you'll end up wherever, you know, but if you're going through the storm, you'll get through it eventually. I realized in my, uh, after spending four plus decades hiding, uh, showing up small, hiding all of my ability because I didn't want to rock the boat. I wanted to seek approval. Uh, I then realized that 
I was a victim. I was playing that card. And only when somebody pointed it out, did I even know that that was a thing that I was doing and was happening. Did that ever occur to you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. After I um, lost my scholarship, I had that very much that victim mentality, like, you know, the world's against me, everybody's against me, because that's what I've been taught my entire life, that the world was against you, that everybody's trying to use you, you can't trust anybody. And once I stopped looking inwards and started looking outwards at the world and try to be more selfless instead of selfish, that victim mentality changed. I realized I had power and I could be empowered to make a choice. You said that you were taught that. You were taught that by your father, right? Yes. Why? Through his words? Through his words. I was taught you know, to be a victim most of my life growing up, my mother and my father. Because every time we get evicted, it wasn't their fault. It was somebody being mean to them. Or the utilities were cut off because the utility company made a mistake, not that they didn't pay the bill, you know. Or we were evicted because the person was being mean to our family because they didn't like the way we'd whatever, you know. Instead of saying we're evicted because we didn't pay the, the, the rent, you know. They never held accountability for what they did, their actions. It was always somebody else's fault. And so they ingrained that in us as kids, that that's the way life was. You also talk about a facade. I'm guessing, I mean, through so many years in your childhood, young adult, high school years, very few people knew uh, about this. And Hidden Nation, um, I just got done listening to the book. So it's all so raw for me what Chris went through. These are not insignificant, quote unquote, unfortunate moments. So many of these are like, can be viewed as devastating, unheard of Hollywood style moments. Yeah, it's, um, and I, I've actually, it's hard for me was actually learning to be vulnerable. Just like you, for 40 years, you kind of held, I kind of held who I was and kind of didn't want to share with the world. And once I started to be able to, feel, to allow myself to be vulnerable, to realize that I should have probably been sharing way back when, when I was a kid, asking for help and things like that. I didn't because I was a teenager and, more importantly, is my parents had taught me that you don't share those kind of things because then you'll be mm. taken from your family, put in foster homes or whatever, you know. And that's unfortunate because those are the people who need our help. Um, homeless families are 30% of the people that are homeless actually every day in the U.S. It's 30% are families. And they're kind of the invisible homelessness because people, they try to keep it quiet so they don't, you know, get taken away in foster homes or whatever. So as a kid, I maintained this facade. It was exhausting. I would be like sleeping in the car as a senior. Then I'd go play sports and student government and be an AP honors role students at the same time. Yeah, I I want to reiterate that. You, you were uh, an integral part in your community. You were on uh, committees in the school, right? You got elected to school council. You, you got to put together the prom thumbs up for that right yeah. but you were you were a sports star you were you were welcome into the community so i mean i can't imagine these two worlds that you were living day to day when you went home behind closed doors yeah it was a complete opposite it was diametrically opposed you know the way we lived our lives versus the way the facade i was maintaining and go ahead okay. no you no, no go ahead i don't remember what's gonna go ahead so no, it's so um growing up there were um a dozen of you, right? To put it yeah, to, basically. to put it. Yeah, in 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 one shelter or another. How would you describe as best you can 
day to day, like the mundane times, the average, what was the vibe like? Was it chaotic or was it just everyone is just in their own doing the best they can with occasional interactions and chaos? Yeah, it was probably the latter. It was more everybody kind of, you know, kind of just surviving the best you could and then, and then chaos periodically. Like when we lived in a hotel, our motel, I remember talking to my younger sister. That's one of the things we're finally starting to talk about as a family. We never talked about it for 30 plus years since we were kids. So my younger sister, she's a pediatrician too, actually. Wow. And um, um, I was talking to her about it. And when she was like eight years old and my younger brother was like three, they were wandering around downtown, the downtown by themselves as kids because there was nothing else to do and nobody was around. So they were just wandering around, you know, when we lived in the motels and, She's like, that's crazy, you know, because little kids shouldn't be walking around a downtown city, you know, by themselves, you know, and just my parents were so struggling, I think, mentally, emotionally, everything that they just didn't have anything else there to help anybody else help their children. They were just so, you know, overwhelmed with life, basically, and not sure how to get out of it, I don't think. Hmm. I mean, it's amazing. Uh, you're you're a doctor. You just said your your sister's a pediatrician. Give us some of the success stories today. So, What's going on? So, in my siblings, uh, ten of us lived adulthood. I had one brother that died when he was young. <clears throat> so, out of the ten of us, six of us actually earned doctor degrees. So, two of us MDs, two PhDs, and two uh, dentists. Um, all of my siblings who were younger than me who lived in the hotel with me. We they, we all earned doctorate degrees. So. I guess desperation breeds motivation. You could say, you know. Oh wow! And are you what? What's the what's the family dynamic like today? Um, it depends. My mother. Uh, so my father passed away, but my mother is still struggling with things, and she still kind of creates tent contention. She has a bit of um, some probably undiagnosed mental health disease, and um, she's created some fractures. But we're starting to finally get over that, you know, healing and stuff of going back and talking about the past. Some of my sons have a very close relationship with like my younger sister and some of my other brothers. But some of the other ones are, they still haven't come to terms with their lives growing up. I know it's been a long time, but they still internalize us and just have not, they're just angry, angry at the world. And, you know, it's anger inside. They haven't developed, worked through their, the uh, past and let it go. Learn, learning how to let it go. Uh, final thoughts here. How, how did you and do you work through all of the emotional stuff that you uh, experienced in life? What does it come down to? I think, first of all, you have to learn that it's okay to cry, that it's okay to be vulnerable. As men, I think a lot of times we are taught that we shouldn't cry. We shouldn't be vulnerable. And letting it just seep through you, you know, let it, let it realize, you know, it happened. It was terrible. It was rough, but it's in the past. And, but, and not running from it, but just accepting that that's who you are. It made you who you are, that regardless of what you went through, it's in the past, but it made you, charactered you and made you who you are. And like I said, it's okay to cry. It's okay to be vulnerable. We're taught that we shouldn't be vulnerable, but it's okay to say, you know, if you have somebody you love, you can say, hey, I'm struggling today with this or whatever it is. You know, share, truly be vulnerable and have that connection with somebody else. And once you're able to share your vulnerabilities, I think you can actually work through those difficulties that are the baggage of the past because then we can learn to accept it. The thing is you have to learn to accept that it happened and you can't change it, number one, but you can change how you live today, the present. You have a spiritual practice today? Yes, I do. I, uh, I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But uh, in addition to that, I've actually been doing a lot more mindfulness and meditation and things like that, learning to kind of 
be in the presence and learning a lot more about those things. My wife does yoga. She's very good at yoga. And and so learning kind of mindfulness and meditation for me has actually been very helpful for me to be able to learn to uh, leave that anxieties and those that, that stuff in the past, learning to live in the presence. Um, it, I, one can say your whole life is still ahead of you here. Uh, yet y- you, you may feel like, you know, you've won, but wh- where do you go next? Wh- yeah, see, what- I don't say that's things I don't feel if I ever, ever won anything ever, you know, it's just, um, my goal now is to try <laughs> to help others to overcome their own challenges. So I'm actually working on another book called, called uh, a nonfiction book called Overcoming Adversity. Kind of it goes through steps of how you overcome adversity. So that's my goal now is to help people become better themselves and just to help other people to share as I've been lifting and will lift others up. Dr. Christopher Smith, my goodness, I feel like we only scratched the surface. Uh, it will be a pleasure and honor to have you back anytime to go deeper on any and all of these subjects. Hidden Nation, this is the book that I wholeheartedly recommend. You must go out, whether it's Amazon, the uh, the Kindle version, or like me on Audible. It is extraordinary. Very well done, sir. Uh, thank you for your time and uh, best of everything going forward. Thank you, Josh. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. I really appreciate it. There you go, Hidden Nation. Thank you for spending your time. Remember, be seen, show up in the way you know inside you are capable of doing. Thank you for tuning in. We're going to do it again before too long. Until we do, take care, be well.